We're going to read from Ephesians 2. This is God's word. I'm just going to read the first seven verses from the beginning of Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. So let me ask you a question this morning. If Jesus didn't really die on the cross and the swoon theory was true, and the swoon theory is that Jesus did not die on the cross but merely fell unconscious, he swooned, He later revived in the tomb in that same mortal body and then he came and showed himself as uh, recovering to his disciples. That is posed as a theory of how do you explain what happened. If, If you heard that, would you still think Jesus' resurrection was a powerful miracle? No, of course not. If Jesus wasn't dead, it deflates the miraculous and it destroys our salvation because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die, either you or Jesus. Somebody has to die. So now let's take this a step further. If we were really not dead in in sin and the swoon theory was true about us, that we were diseased by sin but not deceased, Exhausted but not extinct spiritually, wounded but not wiped out, simply a basket case but not a casket case, just recovering. Would you think that God's making you alive in Christ? Would you think of regeneration as a powerful miracle or not? I think there's a lot of swoon theory alive in hearts. They don't believe it about Jesus, but they believe it about themselves. And what Paul is saying here is he begins the sentence of chapter 2 with and. You don't start sentences with and. At least not in my house because my wife corrects me if I do. (laughs) But Paul does in chapter 2 because the 2 is not inspired. It's not from the Holy Spirit and certainly wasn't from Paul. It all connects. He wants you to see what he's praying for. So he gives you an illustration. He's praying that you would know the power at work in you who believe. He would, you would know it because and you were dead. You were dead. Rigor mortis, spiritually, no interest. You see, Paul's illustrating the third petition of his prayer. He's praying that you would get it. He would, that you would understand that exactly what happened to Jesus Christ is what happened to you. 
Jesus Christ was dead. He was raised on the third day. And what he wants you to see is the connection that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus wasn't the only one who was resurrected. You were regenerated if you're in Christ. Jesus isn't the only one who ascended. We were raised up together. Is, and the New King James brings this out. I wish the other English translations would do it. Three times, together, together, together. And if you have a King James or New King James, you'd get it. The idea is that we were made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul is saying? Do you get this? Paul prays that we would know in verse 19 of chapter 1, it's in your bulletin, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This is for us. It's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, and then you jump to chapter 2, verse 5, and you see the connection. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, raised us together with him, seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. John Stott's commentary on Ephesians 2 is helpful here. He says this, Paul first plums the depth of pessimism about man. And it really can't get any worse in those first three verses of Ephesians 2. The pessimism. And then rises to the heights of optimism about God. For what Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between what man is by nature, that's Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and what he can become by grace. That's verses 4 to 10. Your past couldn't be any worse, and your future couldn't be any more glorious. You've gone from the depths of hell, headed to hell, and seated in heaven in four verses. And no wonder Dave's praying, this is huge. I mean, do you get this? It wasn't a swoon theory that got you here. If you're here and you love Jesus and you, you love the things of God and you love his word, it wasn't because you swooned and needed a little help. When I was a kid, some of you guys are going to remember this, my favorite TV show, and it was on Sunday night because it was tough because we had Sunday night church and we would go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. This was the first Baptist church at Gaithersburg and I couldn't wait to get home because the $6 million man would be on. And at one point, the $6 million man, Steve Austin, he actually fought barefoot. And when he fought barefoot, I mean, that was huge. If you go back and watch it on YouTube, it is a scream. It is just like the most low-budget, cheesy thing you've ever seen. But at every episode, what's that? A big, I said bare, barefoot. Bigfoot, thank you. That's a huge correction. I don't even know who barefoot is. there. Bigfoot. I know you were watching it with me, weren't you? <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was huge. <laughs> so every episode, they would show this incredible plane crash. And of course, the guy, there's no way in the world he lived in that crash, as my dad verified to me as a kid. But every episode would have Oscar Goldman saying this quote, Steve Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. 
gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to build the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man, better than he was before, better, faster, stronger. And then it would start in and, you know. <laughs> and he could run up to 60 miles an hour, you know. And, and, and it was amazing. But look what it says. Keep that quote back up there for a minute. A man barely alive, we can rebuild him. Swoon theory. And, and you watched it because, hey, we can revive this guy. That's bad theology about us, okay? Not true at all biblically. We weren't barely alive. We can't be rebuilt. We are dead. Dead men don't walk. And yet by verse 10, we're walking and doing the good works which he created us to do. So how is that? The reality is, you see, where we should have paid the most attention, we paid no attention. In the flesh, in and of ourselves, we have no regard for God. We give him the Heisman, give him the shove, the stiff arm. We're dead to the things of God. We considered him rubbish, considered him worthless, considered him not worth our time. We love the world, we love the things of this world, love the lust of the flesh, love the lust of the eyes, love the boasting and bragging of, about our possessions and not realizing who's really possessing us. And God's inviting us to his banquet and we say just like things they said in the gospels, I just got married, I just bought a piece of land or I got a new farm animal and I gotta go check them out and we made all kinds of excuses but at the end of the day we said, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas and crucify him, crucify him, away with him. We will not have this son to reign over us. We wanted nothing to do with him in our flesh. It is a real and present death as John Calvin describes it. The Bible says that your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. There's a problem. And the problem is described in Ephesians 4, and maybe this describes you this morning. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness to the hardness of heart, to become callous, giving themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And what, and what Ephesians 2 is saying is that follow the D's, follow the D's. He begins with, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the first D is we were dead. The second D is in, once, in, in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the second D is we're not only dead, we're disobedient. And the third D is among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the lust of the body and the mind. And we were, we were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does it say children of wrath? It does. It's saying we were doomed. That's the third D. 
doomed for a eternal punishment. That's what wrath is. It's God's infinite majesty and his glory and his justice being poured out because we've scorned it and we've mocked it and we've disregarded it and said, I don't need it. I don't want it. And we've worshipped other things. And so what Paul is saying here is we didn't just need a little help. Our battery wasn't just a little low. We need a little jump start. Our spiritual battery was dead. And maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you don't read the Bible. You don't love God's word. You don't meditate on his word. You don't meditate on it day and night. You're not bearing fruit in season and out of season. You'd read anything and everything but God's word. The only difference between the righteous and the wicked, as Psalm 1 starts off, is the wicked, they just, they, they're, they're walking in the, in the place of the world, they're sitting with the, with, the, with the mockers and the scorners, but the righteous delight in God's word, and they meditate on it day and night. That's the only distinction, is they love God's word. Are you a lover of his word? That's a mark that God is at work in your heart and life. You know, we tend to think of, of salvation in terms of analogy like this, that man is drowning, he can't save himself, and he needs God to throw him the lifeline, throw him the life ring, give him the chance to respond. And yet what Paul is saying here is, is much greater than that. It's more than just I was sinking deep in sin. R.C. Sproul has this great quote from Chosen by God, and he says this, that man is not merely drowning, he's already sunk to the bottom of the sea. It is futile to throw a life preserver to a man who's already drowned. If I understand Paul, I hear him saying that God dives into the, into the water, pulls a dead man from the bottom of the sea, and then performs a divine act of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He breathes into the dead man new life. That's more of what Paul is saying here by the power of the Holy Spirit speaking. He's saying that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive. He raised us up. We call that regeneration. You see, the biblical picture is not that we were like Jonah, sinking down in the water and needing to be rescued by a fish. The idea is much more Lazarus, and that's why we read Lazarus, is that he's four days in the grave and he stinks. And Jesus can come along and say, Lazarus, come forth. And that's what he says to our hearts. As he turns on the lights, we're blinded by the God of this world. And we're, he blinds the minds, but he gives the light of the knowledge of the truth of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he causes the lights to come on just as God spoke ex nihilo into creation, creation out of nothing. He does that in regeneration. He recreates out of nothing. Augustine put it like this. <clears throat> this is going way back, early church father. And he was going against the Pelagian controversy of his day. And he says on John 6, 44, he says, when therefore the gospel is preached, some believe, some believe not. But they who believe at the voice of the preacher from without hear of the Father from within and learn. While they do not believe, hear outwardly, but inwardly do not hear or learn. That is to say, to the former it is given to believe, to the latter it's not given because no man says he comes to the Father, it comes to me except the Father which sent me draws him. So the idea is an inward call and an outward call. And, and Augustine's saying 
that God's people hear the inward call by the power of the Spirit. And, but we are commanded as Christians to throw out the life rings. That's why Brian and Esther are going to the, to the Middle East. But they, they have no power in and of themselves to raise anybody from the dead. But they're to go and faithfully proclaim the gospel by their life and with their words. But it's the Holy Spirit that gives the gift of faith and repentance. We're told about Lydia that when they heard the message, it said the Lord opened her heart to believe. And as Porter shared this morning, the promise of Ezekiel 36, the promise of the new covenant that the Holy Spirit will change hearts is this, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will take, out a heart of st- take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do this. You see, God has to do that. God gets all the glory. This is not a swoon theory. This is resurrection, spiritual resurrection. And we make a big deal in theology between monergism and synergism. And the two different, the two concepts have big deal between whether we minimize salvation or we maximize salvation. Did you cooperate with God in your regeneration and exercise your ability for faith and repentance? That would be synergism, that would be unbiblical. What the Bible teaches about regeneration, Jesus said, unless you are born from above, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And that regeneration is monergistic. Jesus went on to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel to when I say to you, you must be born again. The, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born by their man-centered prayer. Does it say that? Born of the spirit. That's God's job. I've shared before that when I was in college, um, we used to go downtown. We would do witnessing down in New York City and different gospel teams, and we would go down into Nyack and do this witnessing. And we had this guy that was just super, super, um, he'd always come back with a conversion story. But I was with him a few times, and I'm like, this person was not converted. I mean, he'd be like, let's just play right now to receive Christ, and he'd pray a prayer, and we'd come back, and you know, and we were boasting that we had, we had led 30 people to Christ down in downtown Nyack. And, and we were sharing these stories in chapel. And everybody thought, man, we are just some amazing spiritual heroes. And the reality is there's a big difference between decisionism and regeneration. Just because you prayed a prayer, it's going to be hard for some of you to hear this, and ask Jesus to come into your heart, doesn't always mean you're regenerated by God. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then you who are accustomed to evil do good. I made a decision for Jesus when I was nine, but I wasn't regenerated. And I was immersed and baptized. I was immersed and baptized a second time. I came every time there was a, a, whether it was rededicate your life, I went forward. Dedicate your life, oh, I hadn't done that, so I'd go forward. Every week I was going forward, and I got baptized twice, dunked twice, neither time regenerated, returning to my sin because it was about me and my decision. But I would quickly go back to my sinful patterns. But when God 
did the work. And when he saved me, he got the glory. And then all of a sudden, there was a huge change. It was like the scales had been lifted off. I started to love God's word. I started to pray. I remember the first time I prayed for five minutes. It was like unbelievable. I just, I just prayed for five whole minutes. I remember looking at the clock like, that was amazing. I prayed for five minutes. I'd never prayed for five minutes in my life. I'd never read the word. Or I was a daily Bible reader because I would wake up and look at a verse just so I could go to Sunday school and say, I was a daily Bible reader this week. You know, it was not reading me, but I would, you know, do a little thing so I could look really good. It was all about me. So my point is, be careful as you think through with your own salvation story. Is it your decision for God or is it God regenerating you by his spirit? Now, ultimately, you do have to come to faith and repentance and put your faith and trust in Jesus. But the Bible makes clear those are gifts. As the rest of the verses say in 8 to 10, that even faith itself is a gift of God. It's been granted to you to suffer and granted to you to believe. Philippians 1.29. And so... Asking God into your life, are you just asking him into your life or are you also asking him to kill all your idols as he comes into your life? You see, our flesh wants to ask Jesus into our life, but it wants to keep all the other idols. I read a story this week about John MacArthur and he was talking about how he was invited to speak to a whole bunch of actors and actresses at some meeting near Hollywood and he went and he shared the gospel and a guy pulled him aside into a side room and said, you know, and John MacArthur shared the gospel with him. He prayed with this guy, and the guy afterwards said, this is great. He said, now I can follow Jesus and Muhammad. And MacArthur realized that he had to rewind the tape and start over. But isn't that kind of like us? We can see that. But we said, man, I want to have Jesus and the American dream. I want to have Jesus and not get involved in a local church. I want to have my private Jesus. I want to have Jesus and not be baptized. I want to have Jesus and, and still look at these lustful images. I, I want to have Jesus and still sleep with my girlfriend. I want to have Jesus but still have all the perks and have the health and wealth and have a genie and a rabbit's foot. And I, I want to have my child baptized, but I don't really want to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And all that has to be repented of. Francis Schaeffer used to ask a question. And he would say, honestly, have you ever left a sin? Have you ever left a sin because you love Jesus? Have you ever left a sin because you love Jesus? And what he meant by that was, is, is Jesus now more precious to you than your precious sin was before? Then you know that God's doing a work. I want to read just a... a if I'm preaching on Ephesians 2 and I don't read anything from Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's like, shame on me. So I have to read, a this is like my favorite sermon, and you should read it online, or actually even better, listen to it. You can actually listen to Lloyd-Jones' sermons. But one of his best sermons that he ever did, I thought, was, but God. He did a sermon on two words. And by the way, anytime the Bible says, but God, you should take note and underline it. But I want to just read just a little section from Classic Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's with the Lord now. This is Lloyd-Jones in England uh, in the 60s. Sermon's based on two words, but God. And he says this. 
But God, with these two words, we come to the introduction to the Christian message, the peculiar, specific message which the Christian faith has to offer us. The two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells us what God has done, God's intervention. It's something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God, which the apostle goes on to describe and define in the following verses. When Hitler walks in and annexes Austria, we're horrified. Yet people are horrified who do the very same thing in their, in their personal lives. They do it in the matter of other men's wives. They do it in the matter of another man's post or position or business. It's the same thing exactly. Then there's the principle. It is this lust that governs mankind. They walk according to the course of this world, says the apostle. We all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. Believing as we do this biblical doctrine of man and sin, we should never be surprised at what happens in the world. Are you surprised at all the murders, the thefts, the violence, the robbery, all the lying, the hatred, all the carnality, the sexuality? Does it surprise you when you look at the newspaper? It shouldn't do so if you're a Christian. You should expect it. Man in sin of, necess man in sin of necessity behaves like that. He cannot help himself. He lives, he walks in trespasses and sins. He does it individually, he does it in groups. Therefore, there will be individual strifes and misunderstanding. There'll be wars. Oh, what pessimism, says someone. Oh no, what realism. Face it, be prepared for it. Do not expect anything better from a world like this. It's a fallen, sinful, godless, evil world and while man remains in sin, it will be like that and it is much like that today as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and at the time of the flood. But thank God, he says, I have not finished. I go on to say that a Christian is a man who realizing that he's living in such a world and who having no illusions at all about it, yet he knows that he's linked to a power that enables him not only to bear whatever may come to him in such a world, but indeed to be more than conquerors over it all. He doesn't just passively bear it. He doesn't merely put up with it. He doesn't just stick it and exercise courage. No, that's stoicism, that's paganism. The Christian being in Christ, the Christian knowledge, something of what the apostle calls the exceeding greatness of power to us, to usward that believe, is strengthened, is enabled to endure. His heart does not quail. He's not defeated. Indeed, he can rejoice in tribulations. Let the world do its worst to him. Let hell be... Let hell be let loose, he sustained. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, so that it really comes, so that if things really do become impossible, the Christian has resources. He still has comforts and consolations. He has a strength for which all others are ignorant. He, Paul is praying for us to know the power that's at work in us who believe, toward us who believe. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that when Christ was raised from the dead and is seated there, that by faith now that's where I am? And whatever happens to me, I'm already there. And when he returns, I return with him. That gives us a bottom line, whatever may come. And it gives us the courage to do bold things. And if Brian and Esther are bold enough to get on a plane and go overseas, aren't we bold enough to talk to our neighbors? about Christ, bold enough to talk to some co-workers, bold enough to share this message with others. God is good. With much love, he loved us. Let's pray. Father, you have captured our hearts, shown us this power and your glory. 
we ask that you'd open our eyes more and more to know the treasures that are ours, all that we have in Christ. And may we live that out now. We ask that you would use us in this world for the, for the sake of your name. Amen.